And now, from somewhere in the Houston Midtown area, it's the sit down with Slick Vic. Welcome, everyone. It's the sit down with Slick Vic. Got a very special guest today. My good buddy Jeremiah Payne, software engineer at NASA. Jeremiah, thanks for coming on, man. I know you're a very busy man. Oh, appreciate it. Um, you know, before I usually uh, start getting into stuff, you know, I like to kind of give a little background on my guests. Um, I know, I think we've had a couple of conversations uh, about your, your your background, but um, are you originally from Texas or do you did you move from somewhere else? Yeah, I was born in Boston. And then came down to Houston in 1989. Okay, East Coast, huh? Yeah. My father and my mother are both from uh, Baltimore, D.C. area. And then okay. they went to college in Boston, met at church, started dating, and had children up there. And uh, what, what brought them down to, to Houston? Uh, my dad's job. So okay. he was working. As, he's also a software engineer. Okay. And at the time, he was working on compilers for um, a company called Intermetrics. Okay. And the language that they were supporting, uh, Ada, was being used for the space shuttle. Oh, wow. So, and lots of other networking simulations that are being used at Mission Control Center. So, essentially, what happened was Intermetrics had an office in Houston mm-hmm. where they were directly giving compiler updates and support to NASA, and he was brought down to be part of that support team. Now, for those of us that aren't too familiar with the terminology, like compilers, are you referring to uh, just kind of taking the information and what, what what is really that going on right there? Oh yeah, so um, the way like software generally works is you're you're going to write some set of words and or you know patterns, and then you take some rules for an according language, and then you translate the, 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 the input from a human into a set of machine instructions. Oh, okay. And so there's lots of little details that have to go on underneath because a computer is, though it seems very advanced, it's like very basic. It's like you have to explain everything to a child, right, right. except the child listens to you immaculately and doesn't forget anything. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, so uh, and, and essentially what, what he was working on was uh, instructions for the space shuttle, right? Uh, yeah, well, for the for the language that's used. So oh. the the software engineers would at NASA were writing in the ADA, and then sometimes the the compiler that would turn those that software into the instructions needed for the, the the computers that were running on the shuttle would need updates. So it's like, hey, I told the the thing to make a left turn, and it made a right turn. What's going on? It's like, oh yeah, we uh we got that instruction wrong. Right, right. Let me let me fix it so that when you say do this, it actually does what you mean it to do. Yeah, and that's uh, important stuff, man. I mean, you know, they're up there in space or going up to space. Like, mm-hmm. does those calculations have to be pinpoint accurate, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So you come down to Texas. Um, so you because you know your dad. I guess he's working closer to to, to NASA here in, in Houston. Um, what was some of the things, some of the, the hobbies you got involved with involved with when you were uh, when you were younger? Um, so it's always kind of been just roundabout, um, did a lot of different sports. Uh, so did baseball in my neighborhood in the area, uh, competitive swimming was a big deal. Um, so like a lot of the kids were on the swim team. I think our neighborhood has like around thousand, 1200 homes or so. And there were probably about two to 
100 to 250 kids on the swim team each year. So that's a good majority of the neighborhood's children were involved in that team. So that also became like the social structure as well as a lot of my lifetime friends were made on that swim team and during that process over the years. And I know you guys can't tell, but you got that swimmer's body though. You got, you, you're, you're <laughs> long, what are you, about 6'5 or something? Um, no, I'm only 6'1". My brother's the one who's 6'5". But, but yeah. I mean, you got, you got the long arms, right? So you, yeah. so you, you were doing pretty good, right? I'm assuming when you were younger. Yeah, I did well. Um, not, not quite like, you know, at the Excel, Excelsior level, but you know, I did well. <laughs> nice, nice. So, so you were doing sports. Um, I know that engineering is a lot of, a lot of math, right? Was that something that, that you enjoyed, you know, growing up? Were, were you a big math kid, science kid? Um, more of science than the math. The math is more conceptual for me versus if I don't have to solve it. I'm mm-hmm. not going to. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things. Can I can I get someone else to do the equation for me? And is an approximate good enough? You know, right. Uh, not having to know uh, calculus as much when I was younger. Uh, so, for example, like there were electrical pro- um, projects that I like to work on, and as I'm doing the research for certain things, for example, like building a speaker. They have equations for how you calculate the inductance of a coil. Right. And I'm looking at, all right, well, can I just approximate how many wraparounds that I need for this? And that should give me close versus actually having to solve the exact, uh, you know, derivative of XYZ equations. Like, nah, I don't want to do all that. Just <laughs> take me, the, the quick approach, huh? Yeah. Let me, let me just get close enough and then we'll practically figure things out from there Mm -hmm. and then i'll take other measurements that are easier to tune things so as long as i could get the the general idea then i was all about like tuning and refining afterwards versus trying to make everything exact from the beginning so when i mean was uh was it ever the plan as as a young child to eventually go because you essentially like followed your, your father's footsteps right he was a software engineer you're a software engineer um, did you have other aspirations or did you just not really know what you wanted to do uh, when you grew up? It was very much a not knowing what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, there was one big dream at first of just kind of being like a naval uh, pilot. You know, I love the Blue Angels, love Top Gun. I think I watched that movie like 200 times. Oh, okay. Um, but there was a, when I started seeing like how tall I was getting. <laughs> And and knowing those restrictions and oh, there's of, restrictions for that. Yeah, the, they they basically don't want you like over six feet for oh, being a pilot. Wow. Like you can be, but you know, I guess it does make sense. That's a the, the cockpits are pretty tight, right? Yeah, they're pretty tight, and then and also like center of gravity. Essentially, when you're pulling higher G's uh, mm. for men and being taller, you know, that's just going to be even more stress. From what I understand, right, but, right. Have like, you ever flown anything, or have you ever been in in a in a in a like one of those type of planes? Or I have not been in a military jet, no. Mm. But I've I used to love the air show, and you know that that was a thing every every year in October. Right. Go watch the Blue Angels or Thunderbirds, etc. So, like in high school, like right when you're approaching graduation, like that's like okay, what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? What's the plan? At that point, did you have an idea or were you still kind of, well, let me just go to pick a college and hopefully I'll figure it out then? Um, plans had kind of shifted, but I still didn't know what the direction was. I'd gotten into doing video around 
um, my sophomore, junior year. Oh, in high school. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I was also doing a lot of like the different electrical projects on the side. So that was an idea of maybe I want to do electrical engineering. I'd gotten into doing programming and I was like, well, I like this. And I kind of liked the, the concept of uh, uh, one of my favorite books, uh, Ender's Game, with the computer facing off and training the main character. Mm. And I loved military strategy games and flight simulators. Those were like my two big games. And so I was like, okay, well, what if I learn more about computer science so I can write an AI that would be the back end for playing a game? Since no one else will make this game, I can just make the game myself. Right. And so then that became like the, okay, I think that's what I want to do. So I started looking at computer science programs and specifically at universities that offered like some track with artificial intelligence. Um, AI has come a very, very long way, hasn't it? From, very much so. Um, what, I mean, what do you, what is your opinion on, is there a certain point where we're just going to be like, hey, this is turning into Terminator? Like at, w- at what point do do we decide that, or is it you know let's just keep on pushing? Like what what is your opinion on on what should we use AI for, and is there a point of no return? Um, I think that's that's always been a discussion as computers have developed. Uh, one of the very first stories that I read um, that predates like the concept of Terminator is mm. uh, Colossus. Okay. And that was where a supercomputer AI was linked in with the um, nuclear infrastructure uh, during the height of the Cold War. Is this like a book or what? Mm-hmm. Okay. It was a book and they, they, they even made a movie of it. Uh, I think the book was originally written in like the early 60s. Okay. Uh, so computers were still very much vacuum tubes and large right, rooms right. and that type of thing, right? Um, essentially, the Russians were doing the same thing and the two AIs kind of opposed each other and started exchanging mathematic calculations as a way of testing each other's intelligence. Mm -hmm. And eventually they get to a point where they agree the humans are the problem. Right. And so there's always this thing of we have, as, as humans, we know that we are not doing things to the best of our ability. Right. And so if you were to look at things without emotion and logically, then the logical answer is fix the humans. Yeah, And I think that's where the inherent fear comes in is our own insecurity of what happens if we give something the ability and the power to look at us as we really are. Would we pass that morality test? And I don't think that most people would, you know, agree like, hey, yeah, the species is worth moving forward if you could just say, no, get rid of the humans. Right. Oh, you're, 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 you're destroying the planet. Get rid of the humans. Oh, you're destroying each other? Get rid of the humans. Yeah, man. I mean, it's, I think, I mean, obviously that's, that's, that's a huge thing to think about. But at the same time, another thing is, is now you got the, the fusion of, you know, of, of AI with, well, not, not a, the fusion of just, um, like, like cyborg technology, right? Where we can mm-hmm. actually take computers and, and electronics and, and fuse them with humans. I mean, I'm sure you've heard of uh, Elon Musk, right? Uh, what is it? Neuralink. Yep, Neuralink. Um, which essentially is your, 
you know, his whole thing was bandwidth, right? Like humans can't even, even, even though you have your cell phone that can Google something, but what if you didn't have to do that? What mm-hmm. if you, it was just directly into you and you can just kind of like the matrix basically, right? When they just hook up and, you know, you learn jujitsu like in two seconds. Um, well, what do you think about that? I mean, is that, I mean, now you, you kind of get into like ethical stuff, right? Like is, should we be even doing that? Or like <laughs> what? Cause I've always felt like that was inevitable, right? I remember, uh, watching a documentary where, and this was like early 2000s where someone had lost vision, um, in one of their eyes and they had like a camera that connect, they had like these, these glasses that had a camera on it and that connected to their brain and they were able to see, but it was very, very basic, right? It's only, it was like black and white, but still <laughs> they could still see what, what things around them, you know, made, obviously it was very elementary technology. Now, now I'm sure it's basically, they can probably see, see, you know, so. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, what do you, do you think that's that's a good thing? Do you think that's going to have lead to problems? I mean, when you talk about fusing humans and, and machine, um, <laughs> you're you're right. There's there is the 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 ethical changes. There's the catalyst, which is usually repair, right? Right. Um, being able to help the quality of life for someone. Um, I know, like with with Neuralink, Elon has mentioned that he wants to be able to restore motion um, for people who have nerve damage, right? And so that's why he's, they've been doing things like studying the motion of pigs and being able to use the Neuralink that's uh, implanted into a pig to predict what the, the brain is trying to get the legs to do while it's walking. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you can then take, okay, this is what, motion is being fed into Neuralink and then how can we augment that to like actually restore that real motion so you know there's there's good in that right and then you start moving into okay now that we've we've gotten that part done and we start enhancing and then you can buy enhancements and right. superhumans now you've got exactly the superhumans or the super soldiers or augmented right. soldiers and or augmented assassins. I'm, I'm thinking <laughs> yeah, of uh, yeah. uh, what's that? Uh, bl- um, not Black Mirror. Uh, Altered Carbon. That's okay. What yeah. I, was thinking. Yeah. That, I mean, do you feel like? I mean, obviously, the United States. You know, we tend to be a little bit more on the cautious side. You know, because you know we still can vote on laws, and you know the the our society has a lot of influence on lawmakers and whatnot. But when you look at, you know, countries like China, where, you know, their government is calling the shots, they don't really care what the people think. Um, you know, they can just kind of, kind of just, there's no limits. There's no one, there's no barriers, right? They're going to just do whatever they want. Um, I, I don't, I think even with the example with China, like the, the government itself is still relatively conservative and, and hard limited. Uh, for example, like you had uh, a doctor that, took it upon himself to essentially manipulate some DNA of a fetus. Okay. Um, to try to make like an HIV um, DNA-based vaccine, like if that makes sense. Like, oh, okay. So the, the baby would not be able to c- contract HIV. And okay. government came down on him really extremely hard. hard. Okay. Uh, I remember reading about it uh, a bit on Ars Technica, which is like my favorite 
general tech website. Um, they just have lots of Ar- different. Ars Tech. How do you say it? Ars Technica. So Ars. it's like A A R or A R S T E C H I N A. Okay. I have to check that out. Yeah, it's a it's a fun conglomeration of just different combinations of technology and its uh, implementation and culture. So everything from cars to AI, uh, different laws that are affecting um, whether it's copyright or or technology and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm I'm victim to it. You know, you definitely got to be careful. You know where you get your information from, and. Um, I guess it's, there's always just been this this stereotype or just this perception of China, you know, just being this like evil country. But as as you know, I've done a little bit more research. You know, like like you said, you know, like when when you tell me something like that, um, it definitely goes against what what people believe China is doing or what they would want to do, right? If if they're against something like that, um, then they would probably not be for doing other crazier things i mean because if, if you think about it creating a person that is you know immune to hiv you know that you would think that's a good thing or, or you would think that that's not pushing the envelope that much so what i mean what do you think they would say if he created like you know a super soldier that's like going to be six five and mm-hmm. run a run a four two forty or something just all, the, <laughs> all these crazy uh attributes you know uh, if they're against this it, it would probably make sense that they're not really pushing yeah because you're right i mean um they they do tend to be a, a little bit conservative as well you know they um i mean they're not savages right you know they have they have morals and whatnot so mm-hmm. yeah i think i think it's definitely one of those things where i just i shouldn't just go ahead and assume that they're going to do this they're going to do that maybe i should check out your website and, and really get information before i just make assumptions well i mean there's there's also the you know how how does varying culture look at where are the ethical boundaries of what you're trying to do in progression, right? Um, and, and I think it kind of ties back into what you were mentioning before of, um, you know, here we're looking at the people to kind of guide the government in terms of forcing the government's hand as to where we stand or what we think should be progressive, right? Right. Um, and, and then, on the other side, where you were saying, like, you know, with the government in China being more of, okay, look, this is what we're going to do. Exactly. <laughs> and, and this is exactly how we're moving forward. Um, it's, it's, it's still, you know, based off of what I think the, the culture though. No, true. Yeah. You know, is, is going to, to decide for itself, you know, cause we're in, even in the two, we're still very different from like a European centric culture, right. right? You know, like, there's there's such a blend of hey you know this is exactly what we want and the government's like no and then the people are like no do it like, okay okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're right no um it, i mean it, it all comes down to culture there when you, you break it down because even even when you say like oh well the government has you know they exercise so much power well the government still consists of people right? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so the people have culture you know so it's it's still um, like I said, it comes down to the culture. So you mentioned you you got into uh, videography mm-hmm. when, you, when you were in high school. What what kind of drew you into that? Was it just more of the technical aspect of it, or are you a big like film guy? What what was the whole draw behind getting into being behind the camera? It was kind of both. 
And then it was also around the time when prosumer digital video was starting to become more accessible. Okay. In the 90s, you still had uh, the the birth of nonlinear editing um, becoming more of a staple at the high end. Uh, for example, like an Avid Symphony editing system would cost like $100,000. Right. Um, or the DaVinci coloring system would be like $150,000 like per license, right? Um, but then uh, you had Apple introduce uh, Final Cut Pro for $1,000. And mm. the original Final Cut was based off of another system. Um, they kind of went through a couple different uh, companies before it ended up at Apple. And Apple was like, I think we could do like this video thing. So for a few years, Apple kind of concentrated on doing more professional video. Um, and at that time was just kind of me following along with different toys essentially like in the in the tech industry and like hard drives were starting to become bigger. I remember like the first hard drive I bought for video editing was 80 gigabytes and it cost me $300 and I was like, "Woohoo! Yeah. So much space." Right. Nowadays that's nothing. <laughs> one shoot maybe depending if you're shooting on 4K then yeah. It's not even going to be enough. 4K will will just eat right through that. Um I did a video project for um wonderful uh, musician in Houston uh, named uh, Babushka. Mm -hmm. And when we shot her visual EP in 2016, uh, we did five music videos in four days. And across that shoot, shooting in 4K, uh, we shot about four terabytes. Wow. In, in a matter of those four days. It was literally like a terabyte a day. It's a lot of memory cards. Uh yeah. <laughs> the 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 memory cards were only 128 gigabytes. So what ended up happening was that was good enough for 14 minutes of footage. And I had four of them. And I had uh one of my really good friends Desmond uh with my laptop mm -hmm. and an 8 terabyte hard drive hooked up and the memory card reader. And so the cards were come you know, out, numbered and transfer. I give it to him, he would give me the next card, I put it in the camera. And we just kept that rotation going. And the 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 most adrenaline pumping moment was when I had to hit that format button on the camera. Oh, like, yeah. please tell that, me that, you have saved every yes. little bit of this footage before I delete the camera. Yeah, because then it's gone forever. <laughs> and, and especially with us just rotating through, mm -hmm. there wasn't going to be a chance to recover any footage because we were filling those cards right back up again and then putting them back into rotation. So, so, so. Basically, you came in at like the cusp of, of this revolution, right? Because, mm -hmm. I mean, like you said, things were not, I mean, nowadays, I mean, if you think about it, you know, you, what the phone can do, right? The mm -hmm. phone, the, it, mm -hmm. with the phone, um, you can, you can do so many things. You could shoot stuff with it. The quality, you can shoot in 4K. But like you said, you know, in the nineties, you know, you're spending a hundred K for a, a license. For, mm -hmm. for the software to TV. so obviously unless you're just you know you know balling out of control you're that's not even an option for you right you're you're not thinking about doing that so you came in and you know when you were young and here comes this this new accessibility to to software thanks to Apple I, I and I never realized that it was Apple that really you know kind of 
helped everybody out by introducing this, you know, I remember, I mean, I knew about Final Cut, but I didn't think that it was kind of the, you know, the stepping stone. And because I'm assuming once they came in with, you know, a thousand dollar software, I mean, they kind of cornered the market for people to be able to, you know, that didn't have a lot of money. And then that's when all these other companies had to step in and go, wow, well, then if they're going to charge a thousand, we should come down and match that to compete, right? Yeah, it did. It did change the the landscape a bit. Um, you had Adobe Premiere. Right, right. Um, at the time, and Premiere, the early versions of Premiere were very, very bad. It was just beyond super buggy and just the interface was ugly and, and everything else. Um, so in comparison, Final Cut versus Premiere, Final Cut was a step ahead and Final Cut started introducing more acquisitions or Apple started doing more acquisitions and bringing that into the Final Cut suite. So it started with just a single piece of software, and then that Final Cut suite that you got for a thousand dollars started including things like a, um, a Cinema Conform tool for doing uh, frame scanning from film into digital. Oh wow! And helping people out. So if you were doing like an indie film, you were shooting on sixteen millimeter, and that Telesyn process of getting your sixteen millimeter film into a digital editing system was now basically included. All you had to do was just go to get the hardware, rent the hardware to run your film through, and you could do that all within Final Cut and have everything frame matched and stuff like that. So that started making, like you said, uh, Sony and and their suites come down or producing consumer versions mm. of their high-end suites. And then Blackmagic came in, and they really took that that Apple model of let's buy something expensive and then make it either a thousand dollars or free, and now you can get uh, Blackmagic Studio uh, Resolve for literally free. And if you want to pay for their studio version, it's three hundred dollars. Uh, Final Cut Pro is down to three hundred dollars or two hundred dollars, something like that, on the App Store, and it's it's a it's a completely different mind frame now. Um, or even like I said, like with the phones and iMovie. Yeah. Or, or TikTok, you know, doing, you can do green screen effects on your phone in real time. Yeah, it's crazy. And I remember the first time I shot a blue screen, it took two days to render. Oh, wow. (laughs) The, the, the five minute segment. And we just took like our campus news people and put them in Paris for a Valentine's Day special. And that computer was just pegged at a hundred percent for two days straight. So, you start getting involved with with the videography. What what is it that you were doing? Were you just doing everything? Did you were you um, writing short films? Were you just doing videos? Like what were you just playing around? What what kind of how did you kind of start off with it? So it started with like the the regular home movies for holiday type things, right? Right. Um, my father had just gotten a new camera. He used to have a video camera for when we were young, recorded everything, you know, first Christmas, birthdays, things like that. And then eventually like that camera broke and he got a new camera right around the same time, like, uh, my sophomore year in, in high school. And so somewhere like between having the camera and seeing like the little in-camera effects that you could do at the time and. Then hearing about like iMovie and I'm like, okay, what is this this iMovie thing? And oh, they have a Final Cut that's just even more powerful than iMovie. Right. So uh, the theater department at my high school had a copy of Final Cut Pro, and I was able to utilize that on some of the computers on school. And so it was like, 
as I started like seeing like what you could do, then it became, oh, well, how could I apply this to something else? And the next, uh, my senior year in high school, the English teacher, Mr. Vanderzil, allowed us to do our reports as video projects. Oh, nice. <laughs> so uh, we had to do like, you know, these group presentation things or whatever. And so basically we would, you know, take a tale of two cities and dip, all right. I'm going to do a video project to show you that I read this story. <laughs> um, or various other things we had to do. I think for like the theater class that I was taking, we had to, we all had to create videos that were like a parody video. Mm-hmm. And at the time, um, uh, uh, 9-11 had just happened uh, earlier in the year. Um, and there was the anthrax. Oh, the anthrax scare scares in the that mail, were coming yeah. in in the mail after mm-hmm. that. And uh, The Phantom Menace, the first of the Star Wars prequels, had just come out as well. And so for my parody video, we decided to do a duel of the fates um, (laughs) with the Jedi fighting Darth Maul. And the Darth Maul was essentially Osama bin Laden. Oh, wow. And uh, the Jedi were uh, the president and vice president at the time. (laughs) And so it was, it was supposed to be, um, just, you know, like this Jedi fight to represent like the response and the war on terror and Mm -hmm. everything with the airstrikes that was going on. So we, we actually grabbed some footage from some of like the military tapes that were out at the time and dropped that in as footage in between, like with the lightsaber strikes. Okay. Um, tried to reproduce like the matrix bullet time. Oh wow. So, you know, with with bullet time they they actually had multiple cameras mm-hmm. strung up and then they all were sequenced to do their shots to create like that wrap around effect with Neo bending back. And I decided, well, if we shoot against a black sky, it'll work close to a you know, a dark background that I can work on rotoscoping out. And there's like the little merry-go-round at the park. Because mm-hmm. we did this whole fight scene at my neighborhood park. Right. We had them jump up onto the merry-go-round and hold the pose. And then oh. somebody off camera rotated the merry-go-round so that they rotated. And nice. then I just lifted the camera up and down <laughs> to create like that mm-hmm. bullet time effect. And then they continued the fight. So then we just rotoscoped all that, you know, in post with, with Final Cut. Um, Must have come out pretty good. It- <laughs> well... <laughs> Well, I mean, the idea, the concept sounds good, right? Yeah, we got an A. <laughs> uh, the, the, the quality of the camera I was shooting with at the time, though, was, you know, it was trash. But it, it was just, you know, because like I said, it was my, my dad's like VHS camcorder that he right. got from the time. And we were running that through a digital converter to get that into Final Cut. But those are the kind of projects that I started with. And when I got to college... And being at an HBCU at Prairie View, I was very new to step shows and fraternities and things like that. So uh, all the different talent shows and stuff, when I found that there were people who had like their own handicams and Mm -hmm. were were showing up, I would just be like, hey, can you film this and just give me a copy of the tape after you're done? And so I would do that and edit like a building talent show or one of the step shows and make like a full production from it. And then I would sell the 
the production on VHS tapes. Oh, nice. So I was like, oh, hey, you, you want a copy of the thing? Here, here you go. And then it was like, okay, well, now we need to move up to DVDs because yeah. there was that transition period. Like people were starting to have more access to DVDs. Um, I think maybe by like my sophomore year. So then I started doing DVD production of the same things, go to a step show, go to a probate, get some foot copy of the footage and then sell it. And, uh, for specific fraternities, I'd make one just for them. So I would like re-edit it so that like, it had like their fraternity letters like on the the cover or maybe like a special animated intro or something like that, and you know sell that for twenty twenty five dollars. Yeah, I mean that's uh, it's definitely good in your hustle. On I mean I I was never that big into it at the time. Um, I've, you know I've done a little a little video stuff the last couple of years, but um, things are obviously a lot easier nowadays. Um, I mean I remember back in was it high school my big hustle was creating cds like oh you know napster had just came out or i, I remember when uh m&m's marshall mathers like lp came out i went and got it from the store i had a cd burner i burnt like 50 copies went to school <laughs> yeah i got it for five dollars what's up and or i think it was even 10 um but but i mean if you think about it i mean nowadays I mean, people can just like download anything or you can throw it up on YouTube or I mean, mm-hmm. now everything is on demand. Yes. Yes. Even, yeah, they would, it would have been completely different if YouTube was around at time. And it, and actually I, I take it back. YouTube had just started coming out, which I started transitioning to by the time when I got into a fraternity and then had, um, uh, my first, uh, group come in under me mm-hmm. and I was the DP. I actually put their their probate video up on YouTube and that got something like thirty thousand views back then. <laughs> that was so that was early two thousands, right? Or two thousand and six. Okay, mid. Yeah. Well, YouTube um has their concept always been the same? Just hey, just upload whatever or was did they have something else going on even in the beginning or no, it's, it's, Google has done a pretty good job of leaving YouTube the way, the way it was, the way it was. Like, you know, when YouTube started, they, it was one of those break even things where they barely had enough money to, to, to sustain the growth that they had. And they were trying to figure out like an ad model and, and stuff like that. And so they, they, you didn't quite have content creators being able to support themselves mm. off of YouTube alone. But then Google stepped in, bought them, kind of kept it the same, but was able to kind of emphasize that backend ad model mm-hmm. better. And then you kind of had like that growth kind of spike up where everyone was able to, at different tiers, start to make a little bit more from the ad sense of what you get on YouTube. And until you had, uh, what was his name? Was it Log? Was it was it Logan Paul or was it PewDiePie? It was it was, it was one of the the big YouTubers at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, he ended up having like something that was controversial, and Mercedes Benz ad showed up during the the controversial post, mm-hmm. and Mercedes Benz caught so much flack for it <laughs> that they were like, "Hey, look, no, we gotta, right. we have to withdraw." And so there was a big. There was a big withdrawal from some some major companies from the AdSense model until things were redefined. 
And so that kind of hurt like the, the YouTube content community mm. for a little bit. But I think they're starting to recover a bit. Like they, they have better guidelines as to how they do monetization. And so that allows for, um, you know, the content creators kind of say, okay, look, I know that I want this video to make money. So I need to leave these certain things right. out of the way. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it was a relatively new, you know, uh, you know, concept. So you got to kind of adjust on the fly, you know, if you're YouTube. Um, I mean, that's just how technology is in general, right? Like it's always adjusting mm-hmm. because it, it evolves so fast. It evolves a lot faster than we do, a lot faster than the laws do. So there's constant changes, tweaking of, of what, what it is quote unquote allowed or what is PC. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's always got to be a little there's always and there's always going to be that way right it's as long as um unless we go into full like anarchy mode you know there's always going to be a new rule or something you can or can't do this episode of the podcast is brought to you by the ranch houston compromised of ashe yoga and wellness the garden project and the mill htx is an intentional conscious organization created for adults to connect to an inclusive community through art, food, nature exploration, and movement, and for school-age children to empower themselves through education on sustainability and edible gardening. Everyone is encouraged to connect to the curiosity of their inner child as they nurture their nature in a world that so often encourages separation and fear. Minority and veteran-owned, the Ranch Houston is located south of the medical center, and you could visit their website at www.theranchhouston.com. I highly recommend it. I've been there. It's awesome. Check it out. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Apparel Up, the leading custom apparel provider in Houston, Texas. They help their customers represent their brand correctly with high-quality, long-lasting custom apparel. Whether you're in need of embroidered scrubs for your medical practice, embroidered polos for your nationwide enterprise, or screen printed shirts for your sport team. They got you covered. They also do the apparel for my show, so definitely buy some of that stuff too. And you can find their website at apparelup.us. Check them out. So you you know you have this love um, for videography, for technology. You mentioned you were doing coding. So you're at Prairie View. At what point did you realize that, okay, I'm... I think I should do, you know, engineering, software engineering to be specific. Um, Cause I'm sure, you know, the love that you have for videography, I, I can kind of tell just how you talk about it, how much, you know, you enjoy doing it. Um, was there ever a thought of like, Hey, I want to be, you know, I want to be, you know, Spike Jones. I want to be Spielberg. Like did, <laughs> did, did that ever cross your mind or what was kind of like your thought process when you really had to decide, okay, this is, this is what I'm going to do. Um, so when I, when I did get to Prairie View, I was, I was debating on double majoring mm-hmm. between communications with the, um, video emphasis or, and, um, whatchamacallit, uh, computer science. And I knew that I wanted to do computer science at a basic just because I wanted to do AI. I was really heavy on that AI stuff at the beginning. So, um, I used to, as a freshman, go to the grad classes in AI and just basically sit in and audit the class. Oh, nice. And take home the assignments and, and work on that um, as, as my freshman year. I'd spend all my 
after hours, essentially either doing homework, doing research, or going to parties. <laughs> it was like, okay, I got to ride with someone, and because I didn't have a car, so it was like, okay, what time are you leaving? Eleven o'clock. All right, let me get everything in by eleven, mm-hmm. and then I'm gonna jump in the car, go to the party, and I probably went to like a hundred some parties, like in the first semester. <laughs> <laughs> wow, every day, huh? Uh, pretty much. Pra- Prairie View was had a quite quite a few number of parties uh, that were legendary and epic, um, fun fun times. Uh, but when I, when I got into maybe like, I want to say my sophomore year and the project that I was putting into play for AI was really starting to take place or, or to, to, to evolve and like really become something to move forward with. Then it was like, okay, I, I need to actually focus on something. And I didn't want to try to double major and I was looking at the time in terms of conflicting schedules and I was like, okay, yeah. it'll take me six years to graduate versus maybe just four and a half if I stick with computer science. Not knowing that it would end up taking me six years to graduate anyway <laughs> because of one particular class that I had to take multiple times. Which class was that? Uh, linear algebra. Oh, yeah. yeah linear algebra. Actually, I'd say one class. It was actually, there were two classes. Uh, analysis of algorithms and linear algebra. Um, analysis of algorithms, it was really just the structure of that particular professor in the class. I would always end up failing his final. Mm. Took it at University of Houston Clear Lake and passed with an A+. Plus. Like, it was just, yeah, sometimes it's those, those damn pr- professors, man. They just, you know, they they they, they either, you know, it's, it's weird. It, that's one thing I always found weird about college is like the professor has so much power, right? Mm-hmm. Which could be a good thing because some of them are like, look, it all comes down to the final. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. None of these assignments really matter. You either pass or you you don't pass because of the final. And then you got other professors that put weight on everything equally, or they have it broken down by percentages. So you know, oh, you do better on this test, oh, you're fine. We'll just count this one as double. Like there's so many, and anything in between, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I had the same issue, you know, where I had a professor who put all the weight on the final. You know, you, 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 you don't show up, you don't have your best day, and then that's it. You're done. Yeah. Um, yeah, I completely agree. But uh, but like you said, you went and took it at U of H and got an A plus, so obviously you knew the material. Yeah, and they actually went through different algorithms that we didn't cover um, at Prairie View. And so some of those algorithms were a little bit more complex, mm-hmm. and I did better with that than just the way that, we had to implement. So I'm partially dyslexic, right? Okay. And so what ends up happening is that I, f- I first found out that it could affect my education when I took a math class called discrete mathematics. Mm-hmm. And in discrete mathematics, it's primarily like just different sequences. Like most people know like the Fibonacci sequence and there's lots of different uh, numeric sequences that are similar to that. And when you go through and you're calculating and you get to like 50 places in, if you look at the numbers backwards, that mess up your calculation. Right. And so I wouldn't realize that I had inversely, you know, changed something up until I get to the end. I'm like, wait, that doesn't quite look right. Mm. But then you have to go back and double check through the steps. So same thing with uh, linear algebra and analysis of algorithms. We weren't allowed to use calculators. And as you're going through and plugging stuff in, if I wrote the numbers backwards, instead of writing 12, I wrote 21. Wouldn't think of it and then I'm looking at, okay, what's the next step? 21 times 
four mm. is very different than 12 times four. Right. And it was just, it would always catch me at, at the exams. In discrete math, that professor was like, hey, if you're doing this for programming and you say you know this, you can do these assignments and program them. And I'll take that as you doing the homework. Mm. And I was like, yeah, because I'm actually doing this in, in, you know, I was writing a video game. So right. uh, the, the video game uses linear algebra. That's how you get like the three-dimensional spaces. And that's how you calculate things like specularity of uh, a light bouncing off of materials and you get the shininess and special effects and all of that. So I knew the linear algebra required to do that. I just couldn't write it down, you know, during the test. So with discrete math, I was like, okay, wrote all the code. Here's your answer. Here's how you get this particular sequence. Here's the soft, the, you know, the actual software that, 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 or source code that's used to create this. Here's the results and it prints it all out. And she was like, all right, yeah, you can pass the class. Now, you, now video games, um, that's something that's, evolved to a, a whole entire new level um i remember i mean i remember playing atari and, and nintendo um but like my my favorite thing to do i remember in elementary was doom deathmatch um i had the luxury of uh, a, a down the street neighbor his dad i recall exactly what he did but they had two computers mm -hmm. at his house which is just crazy you know in the in the in the early 90s and uh you know it was like a 486 and a 586 you know mm -hmm. and you know they, they were right next to each other you just took the monitors you tilted them so you know you couldn't see the guy's screen and we would play doom deathmatch for hours it was the greatest thing ever now what we have is and i always wondered when it would happen because i remember watching like lawnmower man and you know had the virtual reality thing mm -hmm. but now i finally i don't know if the technology just wasn't there maybe the processing speed wasn't there for like really good virtual reality but now they're doing some pretty crazy things with it um have, have you ever done that the virtual reality stuff now, not like design it yourself but like actually used it i haven't used anything in recent years okay um so i've seen I've been keeping up with uh, the progression of the tech. So, for example, like Oculus, uh, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, so I know a lot of like the, the back-end concerns that are being done to get rid of the, the older issues like, um, like dizziness and et cetera, mm -hmm. like uh, the disorientation that would happen. And so different things like that are essentially being able to replicate a 4K monitor on your eyeglasses at close to like 120 hertz. Wow. So it's just that level of power required to compute that amount of information and rasterize all that data. Yeah. It's taking a lot more on the back end to be able to, to take what we're used to seeing now and then putting that into a more uh, VR capable realm, if that makes sense. Like you get used to seeing something on a TV, your brain dissociates a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of those things like when you look at TV versus film, just the difference in frame rate with film at 24 frames per second and TV typically being at 30 frames per second sports at 60. You're so used to already conditioned in associating those frame rates that your brain recognizes that as its reality. So when you see something that's supposed to be a movie and it's not shot at 24 frames per second, you're like, yeah, I don't know if this is film quality, right? right? Your brain automatically does that. 
So then when you try start doing VR and you're looking at particular frame rates and particular sets of, of quality, you're trying to convince the brain that this is, you know, a new standard to judge something by. And your brain's like, mm, I don't know if I like this frame rate. I, d- I don't know if I like this, this amount of detail. And so it's like trying to get like these things to, we're, we're moving into a new realm. And so the consumers themselves also have to establish what is comfortable, what feels right, what feels like VR, you know? Yeah. Is, is that, because I know, um, I mean, obviously, right, every couple of years you have 4K, 8K, like it's just, you know, incrementally, I mean, exponentially growing. <laughs> um, is that where you think we're going to go to where, I mean, obviously it's always going to keep getting better and better, but do they want to go to the direction of just having this screen or do they really want to go to actually putting on the glasses and, and actually being in the environment? Where, where do you think the main focus is or is it just both? I think, I think it's a combination of both. Um, you have some people who are, you know, in areas that are really trying to focus on that quality of experience when you are doing something and putting on the glasses and going into an environment. Mm-hmm. And then there's, other experiences that you can set up for existing on the screen. And I think, I think Microsoft was working on an augmented variation where it projects um, image around mm. your living room based off of something to ex- basically expand your screen. Right. So there's, there's, there's lots of, Almost like Minority Report, right? You remember? Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. So, like, where you have like the projected uh, holographic like interfaces and everything. Yeah, right. yeah, that would be uh, that'd be really cool. Um, like holograms, you know. Like, I, I always wondered. I remember, I think I was playing at Funplex, the arcade, and they had this video game where it was a hologram that would come up, and you you would see it. You didn't really. It was kind of weird because the, the hologram was actual of an actual person, and you. It was kind of hard for you to like control them in real time. But I mean, they were trying. It was a long time ago. I figured mm-hmm. by now um, that technology would have increased and the control of it would have gotten a lot better. Um, I know you got like keyboards, right? Hologram keyboards. It projects on the table, and you can sit there and and use it like that. So. Um, yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, I think I definitely think that's going to be something uh, in the future, right? I mean, as you said Microsoft's really working on it, and that kind of kind of eliminates the setup of having this big giant screen and moving stuff out the way. If it's just all projected, right, it's going to be a lot easier to to maneuver and to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, so you decide that. You want to go into uh, the software engineering, that's what computer science major, that's what you want to do. And you graduate from Prairie View. Where, where, did, where was your next step after that? Where did that lead you? Honestly, uh, NASA started while I was still at Prairie View. Oh, okay. You interned there or something? It was, a, it was a, almost like a co-op type program mm-hmm. they had set up. Um, so with government contracts, there's a certain percentage that they want allocated for major contracts to small minority disadvantaged businesses. Okay. Um, so that can be a business that is owned by a woman, um, by a veteran, um, by someone of color, right? And 
there's also a percentage that needs to go towards uh, education. And there's like another percentage that needs to go towards like, uh, I forgot what the third category is. Essentially, what they did was they set up a, a program at my university called the Storefront. Mm-hmm. And the idea that was proposed with the Storefront by a woman named uh, Nancy Pelosi was or not Nancy Pelosi. Um, that's the uh, what's speaker. Her name? Speaker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's her name now? It's it's it was Nancy, and it started with the P, and I went straight to Pelosi. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, it's been so many years. Nancy, please don't be mad at me if you hear this. Uh, but it was Nancy and Diane Macliola who who um, interviewed me, and uh, what they had set up was an office on campus that hired students to essentially do a lot of the work that you didn't want to pay an engineer full time to do. Oh, okay. So it was still work that needed to be done, but if you could have the engineers doing higher and you know, priority items and then let some of the bugs that need to be taken off the list accounted for by, you know, young upcoming engineers, that allowed them to one still get work done. Um, it was operated by a woman owned business. And so that was like the way it worked was as a subcontractor to the main contractor. The main contractor at the time was a uh, Lockheed Martin and the subcontractor was a uh, Cimarron. And so I got hired by Cimarron as a junior and along with other students, it was maybe roughly about 20 students. We had like, uh, two managers that were full time and we would work about 20 hours a week. And so you got paid, you know, co-op, intern level uh, uh, salary at the time. But for a software engineer, that that was almost like the equivalent of being like a full-time job at, you know, any place playing minimum wage. So it worked out really good for us to only have to work 20 hours during a school week and still get paid like $14, $15 an hour. Yeah. So um, that was how I started. And essentially what ends up happening is because we've already gone through all the work to be set up into the, the accounts, we, we have like all the IT access that we need to do the work that we're doing. When it became time to graduate, they would offer a job for most of the people who were working storefront and just basically say, Hey, look, you know, you can just keep doing the same thing. Maybe still support the team that you're already supporting or move over and supporting another team. So there was probably like around a dozen people who did take the job working for NASA during the course of like that program. Um, lots of other people were able to use that same experience and outcompete, you know, people from all over the country at different places. Like, you know, you got students coming out of MIT and it's like, all right, cool. You're coming out of MIT. What experience do you have? Eh. All yeah. right. You're coming from Prairie View. I'm not familiar with Prairie View. What experience do you have? I've been working this many months continuously on this level of software that decodes stuff for the space shuttle. Oh, yeah, yeah, come, come, come over yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, that's one of those things where, you know, people don't tell you right when you're when you're younger in high school trying to figure things out, or even in college, that, and especially in high school when when everyone's pushing for, you know, especially in Texas, right, UT, Rice. Yeah. These very expensive schools, especially like a school like Rice, um, when in reality, that's not what makes the difference. The difference is you, you can be going to a smaller school like Prairie View, but if you get that experience in, when you graduate, that 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 makes or breaks the deal. 
Yeah. I mean, like I said, you're, you're out, you're out bidding guys from MIT because mm-hmm. you have that experience. You've already done it. Who cares where you graduated from? You already know the work. Exactly. And that's what actually matters. Exactly. It was, and it was, it was a great feed through process. Um, there was a, for me specifically, there was a, there was a rough gap only because of an issue I had with the dean at, um, Preview for computer science. Uh, we'd kind of gotten into it and he was like, well, I don't think you're actually going to graduate this semester. Wow. And he went and signed my paperwork. That's terrible. So, uh, the next semester, he got replaced as the dean. <laughs> so you were supposed to graduate? I was supposed and to graduate. He prevented you from doing He prevented so. me from graduating. Wow. And so I was What sp- an asshole. It, it, it was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I had more words than that, but <laughs> it, it was one of those things where they, from a contract perspective, they didn't want me to leave. Mm-hmm. So they were like, well, you can work 40 hours, you know, a week, but we can't bring you on as full time yet. So didn't have benefits, wasn't getting paid like an actual salary. Right. And they were like, well, we can try to, you know, fit things in if we just don't want you to go anywhere. And it was like, you know, working for space, it was something that I wanted to do because I'm also like a space enthusiast, right. you know, and just a byproduct of always loving planes and rockets and everything like that growing up. So it's like, all right, well, I guess I can stick around. But I had to wait to graduate in the following semester because the very first week they replaced the dean. The new guy was like, why didn't he sign this paperwork? You got everything complete. Here, just get out of my office. Go. <sighs> and I was, it was like one of those relieving moments mm-hmm. that was so upsetting at the same time. It was like relief that, okay, now I just have to wait till the end of the semester. But upsetting of this took this man less than two minutes to look through my data see that I was supposed to be graduating and sign the paperwork. And this other guy just gave me so much crap. Yeah. I mean, obviously it was an obvious personal thing, right? Like he, for whatever reason, I don't, I don't know, you know, maybe you keyed his car. I don't know. I'm just kidding. I I, I didn't go to class. (laughs) (laughs) That was, that was my, my notoriety. Um, I was notorious for not going to classes. Uh, I would show up on exam day or sometimes for different classes. um, The professors would put their, their notes out ahead of time, like the PowerPoint of what they were going to be going through in mm-hmm. terms of a lecture. And I would read that ahead of time since, since they're sending it out. Right. I'm like, okay, I really only don't understand this item. So I'll come into the class maybe 20, 30 minutes late, wait for them to get to the part that I didn't understand, ask my question, and then leave. And, was like, <laughs> and, and then that kind of goes back to like what I was saying earlier. Um, some professors are cool with that and some are not. Yeah. I mean, you, you get some professors that are like, look, I need you in here every time. And if you're absent this amount of days, I'm going to drop you. And I had one guy wouldn't even let us open the laptop. No laptops open. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> Why? <laughs> some people like to type their notes. Yes. Yeah. But with this guy, not an option. You had to write your notes. And he was like, look, everything you need, I'm putting it up on the screen. You don't need your screen. And I was like, man, what a dick. Like, what does it even matter? Like, but it's it's good to have those. And then you have the other professors who are like, look, I don't, I don't care what you do. I'm going to post everything I'm, I'm going to talk about in class. So technically, I guess you don't have to come. If you understand the material, just come on test day. 
And you know, you gotta love those guys. You know, yeah. the The ones who were like just come on test day, I did better in their classes anyway. Um, the ones that didn't like me doing that, those are the ones I usually scored lower in. And I was like, okay, so is it a matter of my actual performance or you having a personal vendetta of the fact that I don't need to be in the class to understand what's going on? Because it, unlike other students, I was personally invested in development of computer science. So I would go home and then research and work in the field. Like me hanging out was sitting at my computer and programming and working on a project. My senior design project was the equivalent of like four or five of them combined into one. Right. Um, and I did all the coding for that particular project. Even though it was a group project, I'm the one who actually did all the implementation. Oh, you're like the favorite team member. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked out great because like our, our senior design project wasn't just, okay, can you program something? It was to take an idea go through the full software development process of taking that idea and structuring it out into sets of requirements and design documents and testing procedures and test um, results. And so I needed help doing all of that in addition to the actual implementation. Mm. And so we would work on some of the design together and sketch things out. And then based off of that, it was like, okay, now make this design actually build what we said we wanted it to build. And while I was doing that is when we still had to come up with all the rest of that documentation. Like, I think like the final presentation was something like 150 pages. Wow. And I didn't type all of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you had other important things to do. Yeah. I mean, I was making the, the, the stuff, but right. there's no way I could have typed all of that. So, uh, the two people that I was teamed up with, Forrest and, and Heather, like they, they did a lot of work. Because, like I said, the, just the general scope that we were doing was m like four or five senior design projects in one. Right. And so they were having to keep up with all of that extra work just to, to fully present like the idea. So without getting into things that you, I don't know, you might have to, you know, you sign a confidentiality agreement or, you know, you know stuff that <laughs> I shouldn't know or obviously the world. Um like, what exactly do you do there at, at, at NASA? Oh, yeah. So when I first started, I was um, doing what we uh, uh, call like a binary conversion. Uh, there's different um, file formats for data streams, and there were tools that were used to parse those data streams. Mm -hmm. And at the time, they were command line tools, but mm -hmm. they were written in Java. And Java does have a graphical interface uh, section. And so what I did was I made it so that you could take these interpreters of these three different file formats that were coming down and you could combine them, get the output and print them out on a regular printer. And you didn't have to open everything in the command line. It was like mm. a graphical thing with tabs and you could switch and select which button you needed to interpret which particular file and that type of stuff. So that was like the first project that I worked on it was really just kind of creating like an interface for an existing tool. Um, then other things kind of became um, like writing manuals for tools that existed. Uh, from there, it was uh, doing uh, bug fixes for, uh, we have a group called the command system. And so that actually is what they use to send commands to the space station as well as to the space shuttle. At the time, those were the two vehicles that were supported. 
And so you had like the actual backend server and then all of the front end displays that were used by the applications or the, the users. And so the users, you know, they click on a button or they want to do this. And the first feature that I got to support was adding flash as a uh, memory type that you could store a command on for the space station. Oh, wow. So it was like they had like a, you could do something like on the hard drive, you could write a command to memory, and they were including the ability to add like a flash drive. <laughs> and so we had to actually create like, just because we, everything is so specific, uh, we had to create steps in the software to be able to say, hey, you can actually write this command to a flash drive. So you're like part of the uh, like the unsung hero team, right? Like when it, when people think of space, what do they think about? Oh, I want to be an astronaut. Oh, the, the, uh, you know, the astronaut, the astronaut. They're the ones that are national heroes, you know. Um, but none, none of what they do would be possible without people like you. You know, you 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 you're like you're doing the the base, the foundation of 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 you know whether it's working on the the, the shuttle or the space station. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are essential. You know, things aren't going to get done if, if those aren't, you know, good to go. Um, do you ever care that, that you know, this guy who was, who was using things that you designed or you helped implement, implement that nobody, I mean, that you don't get any attention or you just, you know, you don't care. You just, you're, you're having a good time doing it. Oh, no. I mean, I, I love it just because, you know, anytime you see a shot of, especially after the, the work I've been doing over the last few years mm-hmm. uh, with the redesigned Mission Control Center. Anytime you see a picture of somebody in Mission Control using something, mm-hmm. you're literally looking at my software. Oh wow! Because it's it my my system runs in the back end for everything for Mission Control at the moment um, with the security system, and it's it's integrated into all the applications. So all the data flows that that go through Mission Control, the encryption, the the authentication checks, the authorization checks, all of that stuff has to go through software that I built, designed, and tested. And that's been like one of those cool things because at first I didn't want to do that. Right. Like the security, when I got assigned to security, I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. But then it became a cool challenge. And working with like my teammates, like Elias and, and, and Dat and, and Mike and, and Glenn and, and David, like the group, we, we had to figure out all these different solutions to problems where you couldn't just google it like oh, there was yeah there was nobody else <laughs> <laughs> like, there, there these were things where there's nobody else doing some of the things that we were doing uh and and even uh some of the industry standard stuff we were utilizing in different ways because we had a, a different requirement for how we were approaching um implementing our security and so we we had to take a theory and then turn it into our own working practice, and so I I, I have nothing but pride when whenever I like I said when I see a shot of Mission Control I'm like that's my stuff right there like, and, and Google you know Google's awesome calculators are awesome but I feel like that has kind of kind of you know debilitated people in a way kind of made them lazy you know calculator is nice because it does the work mm-hmm. but you should be able to do the work right. Google's nice because it can give you information rather quickly. But I mean, I remember pre-Google, you know, when you, you had encyclopedias or there were ways for you to obtain this knowledge. You had to do some research and that kind of gave you 
discipline, structure, you know, especially doing math without calculators, like all the steps and all the the calculations, you know. Um, I, don't, I remember being young and, and doing these things called Mad Minutes. I don't know if you ever mm-hmm. heard those. Yep, I remember I used Mad to, Minutes. I used to love those, you know, because, I mean, I can do calculations really quickly in my head because I never used a calculator when I was young. And like nowadays, kids, like, some of them can't even do, like, quick, you know, multiplication tables because they use a calculator for everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're at NASA. Um, I don't remember what year it happened, but when I guess uh, NASA started stopped getting so much uh, money from the government, right? They they quit sending, I guess, doing the launches or whatever, and they started moving towards like the private sector, right? Um, so now you got obviously. Elon Musk with SpaceX and, and, and Bezos with his company. What's your opinion on this shift? And, uh, and I'm, I'm assuming it happened while you were working, right? When mm-hmm. this started happening, from um, more, more, you know, more, now it's more like the government's working with these other companies. But now you do have the private sector having such a, a major influence on mm-hmm. on space programs. Well, yeah. So. Um I think the best way to look at it is, does the government make civilian planes? Uh, no. Exactly. But the government still is involved with the airport's infrastructure yeah. and the regulation of everything, right? Of course. So that's essentially the role that NASA needs to be moving towards, mm. is instead of being responsible for all the research and the development and the implementation and the regulation for space travel, it becomes more of the infrastructure that allows other private companies to start commercializing spaceflight. So, for example, with the partnerships, as things did transition, it was a very, very rough time um, when, when that happened because there was a plan as the shuttle was being retired to transition into a new program that had been set up by Bush uh, uh, called Constellation. Mm-hmm. And the idea was... To, to keep the funding essentially the same and transition people from one program to the other. But then when that Constellation program was tra- uh, canceled, there was no funding to support. So a lot of people were getting just laid off. And we went through a period where on my contract, we, we had like around 13, 1,400 people. And inside of two years, a year and a half-ish, we cut down to about Four or five hundred people. Wow, that's a lot of people. And it was like every three months was another layoff, and it was just it was a stressful period, you know. So that was that was rough. But in the general transition into a, working with more private companies, it allows for faster growth, right? Um, NASA is very much involved with the development of specifications for things. So, for example, with the International Space Station. Uh, a, a lot of the development was done between Russia and the United States. But with that, when you have things like the new international docking system, mm-hmm. you now have, okay, well, if you're going to come up and bring cargo, you're going to come up and bring people, you need to conform to this new international dock. So they're working with SpaceX to do that. They're working with Boeing to do that. And even just recently, you've got a Russian supply uh, vehicle up. You've got a Russian Soyuz transport craft up. You have the SpaceX cargo vehicle connected. 
You've got the SpaceX crew transport up. And then you also have a Northrop Grumman Cygnus uh, cargo vehicle connected. So you've got five different types of vehicles connected to the space station right now. And essentially, it's turning into an airport hub in space, right? And with partnerships like Axiom, um, Axiom is actually going to be launching their own modules to expand off of the space station. So you'll be able to go up and visit Axiom because you'll have a fully set up infrastructure on the space station. And instead of them having to finance building out a station on their own, they can expand off an existing one. And once they get their infrastructure ready, detach. And now you have a second place in space independent of the International Space Station as a destination to go to. So it's, it's, it's good in terms of now you're, you're creating industry that mm. didn't quite exist before. You know, when it's, when it's all the government, you're limited by the rate of the government and a single path. When you have private sector, you've got competition, right? Drive and more innovation because there's not quite the same resources as the government, you know, uh, unless you're Jeff Bezos. <laughs> or, or Elon Musk. They both well, got big money. They both have big money, but their approaches are very different. Um, Jeff Bezos is, I'm going to take a billion dollars of stock every year, cash it out, finance Blue Origin. And that's what he's been doing for almost 20 years now. Elon came in um, the same time when he started Tesla. And he got uh, $100 million and burned through almost all of it uh, immediately. He, I think they, it was something like around $200,000 left between the first uh, three launches. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the fourth launch when he was able to say, look, we did a successful launch. And then he was able to get some contract money from NASA to do more launches after that with uh, the cargo program. And then came some more financing for the commercial crew program. And then they started getting satellite um, customers and and actually building up a business inside of uh, the SpaceX realm. So they they had to risk it and say, okay, I don't know if this is going to work or not, but we're going to try. And in, in that approach of, okay, we'll try something new so that we can save money in moving forward is how you end up things like reusability. Mm-hmm. Um, how you end up with like Starship down in Boca Chica right now that's under development. If if the Starship program goes through, Starship would basically revolutionize space travel as we know it, as an industry. Um, right now, one of the cheapest small rockets is the Electron rocket that's being built um, by a New Zealand company. And even then, that's still something like $15 million to get to space for 300 kilograms. Starship would be able to bring 100 tons into space for about $5 million. Wow. Just because of its reusability. So there's there's so much that's going to be happening with private industry. And it's, I think it's, for me personally, I think it's a really good thing where we're moving towards. But the initial transition... I mean, what what is the is the goal just to keep going and going and going to Mars? Or I mean, what's up with the moon? We haven't even touched that. Now they want to go to Mars. I guess is is the attraction to Mars just because you can make it like you can create a habitat there? I mean, that's like the plan, right? To eventually uh, convert it to to 
some type of sustainability where people can go and live? Well, the, the Mars and the moon pr- represent two different challenges. Um, there's, there is a pat- push to go to the moon. Uh, that was one thing with uh, the Trump and Pence administration. They were like, wait, we want to try to get back to the moon by 2024, which would have been a good thing if, cause for Trump if he had won the second election. Mm-hmm. Because then we've been like, look, hey, this is what happened under my presidency. So it was, it was, it was a goal meant to be like a legacy item, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so far, the Biden administration hasn't tried to completely reverse that. And that's one of the problems with politics is, yeah, you know, whoever comes in tries to say, oh, I don't want to do what the, the previous guy was doing, but then they end up doing what the previous guy was doing anyway, but under their name, right? And a new timeline, and there's different delays and design issues and et cetera. So, so far, Biden's not trying to reverse what Trump was pushing for, but he just may not be moving as enthusiastically. So instead of 2024, it might be 2026 or so. But the, the, the first test launch, uh, for the system, uh, Artemis one is going to be launching later on this year. They just completed the, uh, what we call a green run hot fire. And so they take the, the center stack. Uh, with the fuel tanks mm-hmm. and they run it for the full eight and a half minutes that it would be normally doing under a launch. And there's so much power that comes out of those liquid hydrogen, uh, uh, engines that it actually creates clouds and rain. Wow. <laughs> so people are like, is NASA testing, uh, changing the weather? <laughs> how, how did it start raining? <laughs> but it's just, it's just the results of, uh, liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen, um, from the, from the engines. Um, but yeah, there, there's there's one goal to go to the moon, so that's where the government's moving at the moment. Um, Elon wants to go to Mars, uh, so he wants to put a thousand starships into rotation to support that. He wants to do a million people on Mars within his lifetime. That's his big goal. Um, Jeff Bezos wants um, more than a million people in low Earth orbit. He doesn't think that Mars is the right place to go. So he wants to create a sustainable item inside of low Earth orbit. And then there's other groups that want to go out to the asteroids. When you say low Earth orbit, what, what is that? Um, low Earth orbit is kind of like um, somewhere between like, you know, under like 200 miles or so. Is that where like the satellites are or below the satellites? Um, it There's satellites in low Earth orbit and there's satellites okay. like even higher. Um, typically... Uh, it just depends on uh, what the needs are for a satellite that determines its orbit mm-hmm. height. Uh, when it's higher, it's typically when it's going to be something that's like geostationary, right? And then lower is going to be something that is moving around the Earth more. So Bezos, Bezos wants like kind of like what the space station is, just like a little city, but just floating around basically. Because mm-hmm. it's probably easier to attain as well. Than going to Mars, right? Yeah, it, it it we'll we'll have to see. There's there's different challenges with each um, objective, right? Um, there's another company called the Gateway Foundation, and they want to set up a hotel that is in a different type of orbit that's always facing the sun. Oh, okay. Um, and they want to and they want theirs to actually be a rotating station, kind of like from the sci-fi mm-hmm. novels and, and movies. That creates an artificial gravity, and they want to be able to start with having 400 people go up to their st- space station. Wow, these all these things, man, they sound so 
like about time, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I just remember, you know, when when you're young and you, you're watching these these sci-fi movies, and like the year is like 2022 or 2020, and you got the flying cars and all this craziness, and uh, you know, you ask yourself, where what, what's going on here? Like, we were supposed to already be at Mars. We were supposed to do this, but mm-hmm. I guess people just never really understood the challenges that you had to overcome to get to those levels, right? Like, this is it's not easy stuff. You know, this is groundbreaking things, you know, when they do happen. Absolutely. is the combination of the, the technology and then also the, the economic push, right? right. Um, it's not free. What, what makes something viable and attainable, right? Like there's, if, if, if it costs a million dollars to fly, no one's going to take a plane. Mm-hmm. But when a flight cost, you know, $100, $200 and, you know, to get to another city and back, then planes are much more viable option. So you're, you're willing to do that. Um, the first amount of or the first set of space tourism is going to be very expensive. Uh, right now, SpaceX is charging like $58 million a seat uh, on the Dragon to get up to the space station. That's how much they're charging NASA average person is not going to be able to do that even if they saved all of their money in, in their life right right eventually that's going to get down to hey you know twenty thousand dollars to go to the moon that means hey we, we could actually do a honeymoon on the moon right yeah you know that's that's something more attainable than 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 when it's an exclusive item and so when it becomes more attainable that creates more of a drive and the more of the drive that's there, the more industry that's going to revolve around that. You know, like it's going to draw in more competition. It's going to draw in more supplies, and that's going to further bring in the the, the price to make it uh, cheaper. And eventually, it'll bottom out to something that actually becomes, you know, like a standard. But there has to be that that push that says, "Hey, we need to make flying cars a thing." Yeah. Right. Like someone has to say, I really want to do these flying cars. And if someone doesn't do that, then the technology will always be, you know, something exclusive and exist only in fairy tales. Yeah, it's very true. Um, and the last thing we can talk about is the, uh, the COVID effect, right? It's, it's been what a year, right? Since all this, uh, we went on this lockdown. Um, how has COVID affected you? Um, I'm, uh, I think we talked a little bit earlier. You were telling me you, you've been working from home since February. Um, not just the work thing, but talk a little bit about like your mental state. Like, you know, obviously, um, practicing social distances and distancing and not spending as much time as you normally would with, with your friends and loved ones. Well, how have you handled that and, and what have you done to, to you know, kind of cope with it? I think I'm in one of the rare, unique uh, situations where this kind of happened at a good point in my life. Um, I had begun feeling very overwhelmed socially. And mm. even when I got, um, I just bought a new house and I was saying how I just want to be able to take a few weeks to just be at home and not do anything. If I need to do vacation and the vacation ended up not working out the way I wanted to and some other stuff came out. So I was, I was disappointed after that time had come and I didn't get to spend time alone at home. And then it's like, all right, we're going to be working from home. Oh, we're working from home. 
And you, everyone needs to social distance. Oh, you mean I have a good excuse to tell people not to bother me? <laughs> wow, what, you your uh, wish come true, huh? I'm, I'm sorry, world. This is all my fault. I just, I'm sorry. Everyone else had to to deal with it as well. Uh, but I prayed for a lockdown and. <laughs> And you wanted a year? That's what you wanted? I, I, I think after about a year, I guess we're we're good. But uh, no, for the most part, I've I've been fine. Um, my father always jokes around, like when he's talking with my mother, that mm. um, she gets concerned and she's like, "Okay, well, you know, I need to go check on my baby." And he's like, "Your son is fine. Mm-hmm. He's not lonely." He's just alone. <laughs> <laughs> There's a difference. Yeah. <laughs> and it, you know, I've, I've been doing tons of projects at home and building out my wood workshop in the garage and really just taking time to relax and enjoy, you know, peace and quiet. Um, prior to that, I've, I've had 11 different people live with my, in my last house in the course of like five years. Um, I was a touring poet on a competitive slam team and so during the slam season um there were time periods where i was hitting multiple cities inside of a week while still doing a 40 hour a week job at nasa um you know drive out to clean perform come back drive out to austin the next night perform come back drive out to san antonio perform come back drive to new orleans on the weekend perform come back (laughs) and so doing that for years and years it's been nice to just say, okay, I don't have to push to do anything. I don't have to try to squeeze X, Y, Z into this particular set of time. I can just relax and take my time with everything. There's no deadlines. There's no pressure. And uh, for me, it's just been great. Like it's the it's the vacation I needed. <laughs> well, that's good, man. I mean, that generally isn't the, the response that I get from people. You know, people. You know, they miss this aspect of it, miss, you know, the, the socializing or just um, d- having some activity that they like doing that's been taken away. But um, there are, you know, the, the, the occasions, the, the rare occasions like yourself, people who, who just needed that, who just needed their alone time, who just needed to, like you said, not have being pulled in so many directions. You can kind of just focus on yourself and uh, the projects that, that you got going on. So... It's good. It's definitely very good, man. Um, I know. I know. Like you said, got a lot of projects going on. So I know you got stuff to do today. Um, I really appreciate you uh, taking time and uh, coming over. Um, hadn't seen you in a while, so <laughs> it's it's always good to sit down and have a chat. And um, yeah, I mean, we d- definitely when things get a little bit back to normal, you know, I've been to your house once. You got a nice house, you know. Uh, you know, go hang out or something catch up again and uh again man i really enjoy it man thanks for coming on oh yeah absolutely ladies and gentlemen jeremiah Payne. you have a good one folks <laughs>